Well, now, this coming week is an interesting one. There's a very important feast day, and were our organist present, I would have made far more of it, because on Thursday it is St. Andrew's Day. So, uh, when he comes back, you can, uh, you can say, what a splendid fellow he is. But it's also a very interesting week in the church's calendar, because we are nonconformist. Of course, we don't follow the church's calendar slavishly, but nonetheless, it is quite interesting to see how vast numbers of Christians across the world view the year, and this next Sunday is a very particular Sunday in the Church of England calendar. Anybody know what it is? It's the first Sunday of Advent, quite so. Advent means coming, and in uh, large swathes of churches across this world, they'll begin whole series of sermons on the coming of Jesus. But I have to tell you that most of it will have to do with the first coming of Jesus and preparing ourselves for His birth. But as I said to the children, that's a very strange thing when you think about it, isn't it? Because He has been born a long, long time, and as one of the children said, He's dead now. Well, He died, but praise God, that wasn't the end of the matter He is alive and ascended into heaven, and He is there preparing to come again, to receive His bride and to set up His kingdom in the earth. How wonderful that is! But, of course, Advent, then, is not essentially preparing for the birth of Jesus. How could it be? And yet so many Christians treat it that way. No, the Advent season is really a time of preparation for the return of the Lord Jesus his second advent. He is coming again, and therefore the emphasis needs to be, and not only during these weeks and the run-up up to Christmas, but all the time, getting ready for His mighty return. Are we truly prepared? And that's the theme I want to address this morning, because there is a general lack of concern or even interest about the second coming of Jesus. It's all very much a mirror of what we see in Peter's second letter. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 3, we read this, First of all, he writes, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Well, that's an attitude that we find commonplace today, not only amongst politicians and media people and all those sorts of folks, but Christians. Christians who scarcely ever think that the Lord is coming, and yet as they look at the situation around them and all the alarming signs that there are in the nation and in the world, well, the only alternative they have to saying, well, these are the end times. We need to prepare for Jesus to come. There are good times coming at the end of the bad times. Instead of that, they choose rather to put their head in the sand and say, well, we don't really want to know. It makes us feel uncomfortable. We'd rather not be told these things. Why can't you preach to us smooth things, things that will make us feel cozy and loved? Well, I hope you do feel loved. 
I hope you feel loved by one another, and I hope supremely you know that you're loved by your heavenly Father. But if I were to preach smooth things just to console you and make you feel warm and, and nice, I would certainly not be the messenger of the Lord to you this morning, because He loves you more than that. He loves you enough to be straight with you and to tell you the truth. And here is the truth of the Scriptures. There are those, as there were then, who scoff at the very idea of the return of Jesus. And there are people who say, well, of course, all this talk about the coming of Jesus, it's all happened before, hasn't it? All these so-called signs, oh yes, there have been times in history when people have said, oh, the signs are showing that Jesus is coming back, and He hasn't come back, so we know that it's all a lot of twaddle, and people who talk that way are deluded. Far better to get on with living a good life and being nice to your pets. Far more important than talking about the return of Jesus. And certainly to say, if you are not ready for His coming, then there are severe consequences. Oh, we don't want to know that. Not at all. Well, the question is, of course, has it all happened before? To which I answer, certainly not. Not all the signs have been present together in time past, but they're certainly all present now. And unless we're very foolish and ignore these things, we need to take note and respond accordingly to get our lives in order because the coming of the Lord is very near. Let's just turn quickly to that passage in one and two in Second Thessalonians. Not an easy passage to read, and I thought you did remarkably well in the way you read it. Well done. But it is a complicated one, isn't it? And it isn't the kind of passage that we read often or meditate in at all, because it is difficult and it deals with difficult concepts. But there are some very, very helpful pointers here. Because according to Paul, amongst all the other signs of the Lord's coming, His near coming, there are two which stand out. And uh, Paul is very clear on these. He says in cons uh, concerning the day of the Lord, verse 3 of 2 Thessalonians, incidentally this is page 1189 in the Pew Bibles, don't let anyone deceive you in any way. So clearly deception is something which is going to be abroad in these last days. Many people are going to believe all kinds of deceptive things. But he says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until two things. First of all, the rebellion occurs. And that word rebellion is the, the Greek word apostasis, and it provides us with an English word, an anglicized word at any rate, apostasy. You may have heard that word before. What does it mean? It means falling away. Now, if you fall away into something, you must have been on top of it to start with. You know, if you, if you fall away and you're up in a tree, next thing you know, you're down the tree. But you must have been up the tree, otherwise you couldn't have fallen away. And so, what is this describing? It's not describing the uh, atmosphere of evil which will be in the world in the last days. Not at all. It's talking about a group of people who have been in a strong position, but who fall away from that strong position. It's describing believers who are not really believers, if you see what I mean. Wesley had a, a phrase which he used of them. He called them almost Christians. 
They were people who named the name of Christ and said, yes, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, and yet in their heart of hearts, they know that that is not true. They've not made a personal commitment to Christ. The Holy Spirit does not reside in them. They have not been born again. They have no longing and thirsting for God's righteousness, which is one of the cardinal signs of discipleship. So they are simply there in amongst others. But the day of the Lord is going to sort that out well and truly. And then we shall know who is who. And the time for challenge is now, because Jesus, in His Word, in the Gospels, and Paul here in his tells us that there will be this falling away. And as you look around churches, do you see this falling away from the truth, this abandoning the Scriptures in favor of religion? Of course, we live in days now which are very challenging when to be a Bible-believing Christian is to invite the ire of society, and from what we're hearing in the news, much more than that being proscribed, being prevented from declaring the gospel. A very interesting little news item a couple of days ago about our universities. Some of our universities are taking a very, very strong line against Christian unions and wanting to infiltrate the Christian unions and to have representatives on the councils of the Christian unions, representatives who are atheist because they want to influence the Christian union not for good, of course, but to undermine it and to water down its message. Well, this is happening, and that's just the latest. And as you listen to the news, you must surely recognize that true Christianity is being discouraged at every turn. That uh, young Christian woman who wanted to wear her cross, working for British Airways, what an extraordinary thing that there should have been such a huge kickback because of that. Why? For centuries this has been a Christian country, meaning that Christianity has shaped our nation, but now it seems we're ashamed of that. We almost apologize for it. We turn our back upon it and say, well, as a nation, of course, we don't need God anymore. It's all outdated, and we fail to see that there are terrible consequences to that. But we're happy to live with it, and many Christians are themselves so compromised now out of fear that they will not speak the truth about the gospel, about lifestyle, about all manner of things, because it's not politically correct, or to put it a different way, it's not personally convenient, because we shall become increasingly unpopular and have to face tough consequences. Well, this is the way it's going. But Paul doesn't just say that. He says, that day will not come until the rebellion, the apostasy occurs, the falling away, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Now, there's a curious thing. A person is going to be revealed in the last days who will be the very antithesis of the Lord Jesus. Clearly, from what is said here and in other places, he will declare himself to be the one who will bring lasting peace to the world. Now, if there is one thing that the world is searching for now, it is lasting peace. We can rejoice this morning that there is a, quotes, peace which has been announced in Gaza. Well, long may it continue, but if past experience is anything to go by, it won't continue for very long. But let's look on the bright side, as we say, and trust that things will continue in that vein. 
Well, across this wide world, there is so much unrest and lack of peace at every level. Oh, if only somebody could appear that would sort it all out. Well, you can see how the stage is being set for the emergence of a world character who will be able to say, leave it all to me, guys. I'm the one. I can sort it out for you. And of course, he will give that impression because he will be motivated by a power, not his own, but the power of the enemy, which is very real and dramatic. But this character is here clearly spoken of. He's the man doomed to destruction. But before that, it says, he will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. So he will be above all the religions. All the religions will have to bow to him. Now, this is all dramatic stuff, and you can say, oh, crumbs. You know, this, this belongs to the world of fantasy. Well, since when has the Bible been a book of fantasy? Because it gives inconvenient truth, and truth that makes us think a little bit. It doesn't mean it's less than truth. This is what the Lord says in His Word, and it's not the only place, is it? But it should surely alert us to the fact that things are happening in this world which we need to take account of and live accordingly. Difficult days are coming. If you want to have a whole list of the things which will be marks of these days, and they are incredibly descriptive, you look at Matthew 24, verses 9 through um, 11. 9 through 11, or 9 to 13. It's extraordinary. One thing after another, and you can say, well, that seems to be taking place today. You see, if you were a navigator, you would be impressed with the way in which navigation points or navigation lines converge. If you're plotting a, a course for an aircraft, you need to take different bearings. You can't rely on one or two. You have to allow many bearings to be given so that where they intersect, you can say, that's where we are. You look at Matthew chapter 24 when you have a moment this afternoon. Have a look at it and see what Jesus says about the last days. And I think you will agree with me that the way in which all these bearings seem to be coming together at once is a very arresting fact. Yes, indeed, there have been times in history when we could say, oh, well, you know, things have been bad and people have said it's all to do with the coming of Jesus. Yes, but you see, all these bearings are coming together now and we have to take account of them. So how are we to live? Are we to live morbid lives, thoroughly disillusioned and thoroughly discouraged and made to feel, oh, there's no hope? Oh, praise God, there is eternal hope. Jesus is coming. The King of Kings is returning. We don't need to be sad and downhearted because Jesus is coming. Unless, of course, we take the view that those scoffers take in 2 Peter, where is this coming? In other words, we don't believe any of it. It's a lot of nonsense. Well, if that's the way you are, that's the way you are. But I'm trusting this morning that that is not the way you are and that you have an eternal hope based upon your rock-solid relationship with the Lord God of the covenant. Praise the Lord. Just come with me for a moment as we finish into Hebrews chapter 12. What is our attitude to be? Well, of course, Jesus is the one who sets the pace for us, isn't he? We are disciples of Jesus. A disciple is a follower and a learner. 
We follow where Jesus goes, and we learn from what Jesus says. We base our entire lives upon that Word. But in terms of following Him, following His example, here in Hebrews 12, 2, the writer gives us a terrific encouraging clue as to the way the Lord Jesus approached suffering and hard times ahead. Nothing worse than the crucifixion of Jesus was there. So, how did Jesus prepare Himself? Or should I rather say, how did God the Father prepare His dear Son? Because in this example, we can take heart. What does He say? Hebrews 12, 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You can see how relevant that is, can't you? What was the strategy then that God the Father laid before Jesus? Who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. Can you see this pattern? It was a revelation from heaven of the joy that Jesus was returning to. The Lord Jesus was going to His Father's home. He was going back to be with His Father. Mission accomplished. And yes, it was going to mean hideous suffering, the sort of suffering that you and I can't even begin to dream about, because it was very much more than physical, wasn't it? It wasn't just a physical crucifixion, the kind of thing depicted in The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's film, not at all. It had to do with Jesus becoming so identified with your and my sin that He no longer resembled a human being. Now, that level of suffering cannot even be imagined, but that's what Jesus endured. It was far more than physical. It was the torture of separation from His Father because He had been so identified with your and my sin and sinfulness. How was He prepared? For the joy set before Him. Praise the Lord! You see, we have examples of this in the New Testament. Take, for example, Stephen. Remember that for his testimony, Stephen was stoned to death. What did that mean? Well, it means that he was taken to the top of a cliff, thrown down, and then great boulders were hurled down on his prostrate body to crush him to death. That's what stoning was. It wasn't just picking up a few pebbles and slinging them to give you a bruise on the arm. Not at all. It was a, a sentence of death, a Jewish execution. And as he was dying, he said something extraordinary. Can you remember what it was? I see heaven open. Do you see what was going on here? What was it enabled him to die a triumphant martyr's death? It was the revelation of heaven and the glory of Jesus standing at the right hand of God because that's what happened in the case of Stephen. Wonderful. You have the case of Paul. When Paul was first converted, he went into Arabia for a period of retreat, preparation for his ministry. And let me remind you that it was a ministry of constant suffering giving out truth and revelation, but suffering. Very extremely so. 
Well, how did God prepare him for that? Well, in 2 Corinthians, he tells us. He says, I know a man who, 14 years ago, was taken up to paradise, to the third heaven, and he saw and heard things there that are too glorious to speak about. What was his revelation? His revelation was of heaven. But at what point did it happen? It happened before he entered into his ministry of suffering. Isn't that interesting? The pattern's the same. And of course, in Revelation, we have the Apostle John there suffering for his faith because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. His preaching and the testimony of Jesus in his changed life. You see, both those things were a ghastly affront to Roman society. They hated the very idea of the Word of God, and they hated the very idea of the presence of Christ in a disciple. It offended them horribly. And for his pains, he was put on the island of Patmos, a ghastly prison island, suffering most horribly. But how did God prepare him to cope? He gave him the revelation, the revelation of the glorious Jesus in heaven. You see the pattern here. As Jesus, so the disciples. As the disciples, so you and me. Praise the Lord. Let's be ransacking the Scriptures Let's be seeking the Lord for revelation of heaven and revelation of the glory of Jesus because it's when that revelation is burning in our hearts, when that revelation is filling our conscious thinking, that's when we'll know we're able to stand. And stand we shall. Victors in the field. Hallelujah! Jesus is coming soon. My brothers and sisters, let's get ready. This is our moment. Father, we thank You and bless You. You are preparing a home for us. And we thank You and bless You, dearest Father, that You expect us to prepare for the coming of Your Son. Give us grace, Lord, to get our lives in order, that we may have done with fear and substitute it with faith, that we may stand when we're challenged. Thank you, Father, that one of the great joys is that we have each other. Oh, praise the Lord, we're not on our own. Thank you, Lord, for the body. Give us grace to share our lives at every level, that we may stand together, one body, one people, one church. In Jesus' name, amen.